Hello, and welcome back to the Unto Caesar podcast. Um, today, we're going to be talking about Cromwell. Uh, the lyrics for this will be fairly quick. There's only one line. That line is, it'll come back around. It's actually a quote from an episode of Lost. I'm not going to say any more about it. So let's dive right into the history. In 1649, outside of the banqueting house in Whitehall, London, something incredible happened. The English people put King Charles I on trial and then executed him. But let's rewind a little bit. In 1642, England erupted into a series of civil wars between royalists and parliamentarians that eventually led to the dissolution of the monarchy and the creation of the Commonwealth and Protectorate of England, Scotland, and Ireland, eventually led by Oliver Cromwell. The English Civil War was fought for a few different reasons, and most of them began with Charles I's inability to, to maintain a stable and effective government and his behavior towards key advisors and members of parliament. The concept of the divine right of kings and absolute monarchy had been fading across England for some time, beginning as early as the signing of Magna Carta in 1215 by King John. The English people believed there should be limits on what a monarch could do regarding spending, policy, taxation, the levying of war, and judicial acts against the nobility of the realm. Charles held firmly in his belief in the divine right of kings and that, and that monarchs were only accountable to God, not to their subjects or to any earthly government. Believing this, he sought to rule as an absolute monarch and ignore or overrule the English parliament, which created severe tensions throughout the government. Additionally, there were deep divides in religious practice, and even though England was primarily a, a, a Protestant kingdom, remember Henry VIII split from Rome in 1534 and created the Church of England, there were tensions between Anglicans, who were much more Catholic in their ceremonies, and Puritans, who believed they practiced the purest form of Protestantism. Charles I was seen as being too sympathetic towards Catholicism which was exasperated by his marriage to the Catholic princess Henrietta Maria of France, which alarmed the, the Protestant factions across England, who feared a return to Catholic dominance, which had been fought against culturally, violently, and in the legislature since Henry VIII's reign. Charles I was also terrible at managing the finances of the realm, and his excessive spending during the Thirty Years' War emptied the crown coffers. So he sought to raise funds through non-traditional means without the consent of Parliament. He forced loans, and by levying the ship money tax, which was a tax paid to the crown by coastal cities for naval protection against parliamentarian consent, created further tension. Also, just as as an aside, the ship money tax was something that was traditionally granted to the monarch by parliament, and it was always granted. It was a clear sign of parliament's distaste, to put it mildly, of, charge, uh, of, of Charles I, that they gave it to him for one year and then they rescinded it. So he took it by force, basically. He just did what was the equivalent of like an executive order in the United States and started to collect that money on his own. Back to the text. Charles I then fought the, the Bishop's War with Scotland in 1639 and 1640 when he tried to enforce the Anglican prayer book on, the, on Presbyterian Scotland, which resulted in widespread unrest. Charles was unable to, to subdue Scotland, as so many English kings before him, and lost an incredible amount of money, and the lack of support for the war within Parliament took tensions to a boiling point. 
Charles then tried to arrest five members of parliament, which led to the armament of royalist and parliamentarian factions. Charles raised the, the royal standard at Nottingham in August 1642, which officially began the English civil wars. Both sides believed victory could be achieved rather quickly, and like most wars, exactly the opposite happened. Throughout 1642, at the outbreak of the Civil War and into 1644, a series of battles were fought that led to various stalemates, alliances, and breaks in fighting. It wasn't until the Battle of Marston Moor in July 1644 that the Parliamentarians' new model army, led by Sir Thomas Fairfax and Oliver Cromwell, turned the tide of the war and things began to shift. The new model army was the name of the Parliamentarian Standing Army that existed during the English Civil Wars. In June 1645, at the Battle of Nasby, the Parliamentarians enjoyed a decisive victory by destroying the Royalist force and capturing a large number of officers and the King's personal baggage train. In 1646, Charles I surrendered to the Scottish Covenanters, who then handed him over to the Parliamentarians. Throughout 1648, Royalist uprisings took place across England, and a Scottish army invaded England in support of Charles. Uh, the subtext here is that internal factional disputes play an important role across the entirety of the Civil War, which is way too complicated to get into in a brief. So just keep that in mind. Back to the text. However, they were all summarily put down and repressed by the new model army led by Cromwell, ending with the Battle of Preston in August 1648. Following this defeat, Charles I was put on trial for treason and other high crimes against the realm and was executed on January 30th, 1649. The Commonwealth of England, Ireland, and Scotland was born. In order to further solidify the validity and the sovereignty of the Commonwealth, Cromwell was sent to Scotland and to Ireland to lead a series of campaigns there to put down royalist opposition and sequester any form of rebellion. Cromwell's behavior in Ireland was particularly brutal, where he committed a series of war crimes, including mass dehousing of Irish citizens across the country and the massacres at Drogheda and Wexford. He ruled with an iron fist and was unnaturally brutal. His son-in-law would continue this attack after Cromwell had returned to England. There was a final civil war which was fought by Charles I's son, Charles II, when more royalist forces invaded England from Scotland, but they too were defeated decisively at the Battle of Worcester on September 3, 1651. Charles II fled to the European mainland, which finally put an end to the English Civil Wars. While the Commonwealth was capable of maintaining law and order through brutal military force, it was still a poorly functioning government, and when a rump parliament was dissolved by Cromwell in 1653, the, the Protectorate was created. Cromwell named himself Lord Protector of the Commonwealth, a position he held until he died in 1658. Cromwell ruled as an autocratic military dictator while enforcing a puritanical moral code across the Commonwealth. Unsurprisingly, when Cromwell died, the realm was incredibly unstable. It faced a succession crisis and continued to face economic and external pressures that were just as severe, if not worse, than before the, the civil wars broke out. Eventually, due to a desire for stability, a return to form, and harboring a new understanding of, of governance, the English people and its nobility elected to bring Charles II back to England as king, where he was crowned on Tower Hill in 1661. I just have to say that is absolutely incredible. Back to the text. 
The Commonwealth experiment did lead to several fundamental changes to the way England governed itself and the way in which its monarchy was viewed. Parliament began to be seen as a sovereign entity and independent as a lawmaking body that had rights and considerations that set them apart from the direct influence of the monarch. Monarchical power was limited, and the concept that no monarch was above the law was a key takeaway from the English Civil Wars. This was a foundational change that led to the concept of a constitutional monarchy, or a monarchy that is subject to the same laws and statutes that apply to the citizens. The monarch was, was subject to legal accountability and could be put on trial, and in the case of Charles I, executed, which was a revolutionary concept at the time, considering that monarchs had historically led by divine right and were anointed by and accountable to God alone. The establishment of Republican law in England without the assent of the monarch allowed a representative government to make and enforce laws across the land that would gradually lead to the continual weakening of, the, of monarchical position. While there were many knock-on effects of the English Civil Wars, arguably the most important was the passing of the Habeas Corpus Act of 1679. This was passed during the reign of Charles II and recognized individual and civil liberties to English citizens that protected individual freedoms and prevented arbitrary detention. The experiment of the Commonwealth and Protectorate of England was one of the most important periods in Western history, and we still feel the effects of this period today, especially in the philosophical arguments found in the American Revolution. Cromwell's behavior in Ireland and Scotland would create animosity against the English that eventually led to continual unrest, the declaration of the Irish Republic in the 20th century, and the Irish-English Civil Wars. The development and enactment of laws that govern civil liberties is a focal point in democratic societies the world over. The French Revolution carried the ideas of representative government and individual rights as a rallying point, and the American Revolution was fought largely over the protection of civil liberties and representation with fair taxation. That's the end of the written text. Um, I actually don't have a ton more to add here. Uh, I go into some more detail about Cromwell at the end of Ruin, which is track eight. But something that I think is important to draw attention to is um, we've seen a pattern now across each of the songs that we've discussed in which the initial outset of evolution, of course, leads to extreme social, political, economic upheaval. Uh, things go way too far one way, and then they're forced to moderate back um, because society and people can't really live on extremes for too long. Um, I hate to continue to draw examples to the Nazis, but that is, that is an example of a society that went way too far and it, it didn't last a thousand years. It lasted far longer than it should, but those, those extremes can never last. The Commonwealth and the Protectorate were never going to last because of the people that governed it. Um, I think if you ask most people that are experts on the subject, they will say that Cromwell was a real bastard. And I, I think he was. He was obviously a very talented military leader, but that did not in any way make him qualified to uh, govern people in peacetime. And the way that he behaved in, in Ireland really is akin to, to the types of war crimes that people would be hanged for later. Um, it's appalling that he got away with it. 
And interestingly enough, even though he had left his son-in-law to govern in Ireland, who was much more like him, he appointed his son Richard, who was completely unprepared to take over for him after he died. I believe it was the case that he was literally told, uh, you're up, while uh, Oliver Cromwell was on his deathbed. So it was always going to collapse um, from that, basically from, from the outset. But the shocking thing is that the English people decided to reinstate the monarchy under you know certain conditions. But the insane thing is they brought Charles's son back. He had already tried to invade once, failed, fled to the continent, and then came back and was crowned. It it's incredible. I mean, I could be wrong and maybe somebody will correct me, but I believe that's the first time and only time that has ever happened in human history. And Charles II's reign was obviously much more successful in his father's. He wasn't executed. Um, but he had a lot of work to do, right? I mean, he was taking over a country that had been gripped by civil war and had to be essentially rebuilt from the ground up with a restricted set of powers and a more more in charge parliament than England had ever seen before. So it's hard to underestimate his capabilities as a as a politician and a diplomat in some ways. But by the end of his reign, he was able to restore some form of order and stability back to England. Charles II's reign was marked by a period of economic growth and prosperity that hadn't been seen in the realm in some time. He also faced significant religious conflict between Protestantism and uh, his own Catholic sympathies. Um, And this would come to a head later on with the gunpowder plot, which was uh, conducted against his successor, uh, King James II. Um, but another significant thing that Charles did was he passed the uh, Navigation Acts in 1660, which this ties into almost everything else we've talked about. Um, it played some role in the American Revolution. It played a role in the rise of the British Empire. The Navigation Acts uh, gave British merchants a monopoly on trade with with colonies and also only British English ships were allowed to trade directly in England. This was a huge point of of resentment from other naval powers around the world. Um, and finally, when Charles died in 1685, he was succeeded by his, by his brother, James II, who was the King of Scotland. And so that was particularly interesting because finally, in a meaningful and lasting way the kingdoms of england and scotland were united under one person um which that was that was very important that you know there 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 had been conflict between england and scotland forever and so now they were united under one monarch and as i said we'll come back to cromwell briefly uh in ruin so i think we'll leave it there um Hope everybody has enjoyed this episode of the Unto Caesar podcast, and we'll see you next time.